When it comes to the political divide here in America, you know, there are many topics that are quick to create controversy within any given community. Uh, This includes disagreements surrounding the definition of marriage. Uh, This also includes the topic of gun control laws. More recently, we've seen controversy dividing communities over vaccine mandates. There's a long, long list of charged topics that are quick to create uh, controversy and divide communities. And as we examine the long list of these sensitive subjects, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact is that, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the most controversial, one of the most contentious of them all is the question surrounding abortion. Now, in order to understand the reason for this sharp division, it'll help us to understand the emotional aspect of this debate. You see, on the pro-abortion side of this issue, we find those who are completely convinced that the fetus in the womb is nothing more than a clump of cells which doesn't actually become a, a, a real living baby until birth. Therefore, they're offended They're offended by those who are trying to rob them of their so-called right to end an unplanned pregnancy before the fetus becomes a baby. Well, that's the one side of the argument. On the pro-life side of the issue, we find those who are opposed to abortion, and, and these people are completely convinced that the fetus in the womb of a pregnant person is much more than a mere clump of cells. The pro-lifer passionately believes that life actually begins at the moment of fertilization, and it's for this reason that the pro-lifer is determined to protect the life of every unborn baby from those who would try to terminate the life of that baby in the womb. As we consider the passionate stance of those on both sides of the abortion argument, I ought to begin by just pointing out that it's not my desire to condemn any Christian here tonight who was once duped into believing that abortion is some sort of reproductive right. I'm guessing that most, if not all of us, were duped into this position at one point in our lives. Listen, if you're a post-abortive woman or if you're a man who once encouraged an abortion or possibly even paid for abortions, I I just want to remind you that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. There is now no condemnation for those who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And it's my prayer that as we consider the arguments that abortionists use, that that the Lord will take this study and use it to comfort your heart as we continue to consider this controversial topic. At the same time, though, I want to take this time to equip you so that we can begin to deal with the arguments of those who insist that abortion is a right. In order to understand why I'm addressing this tonight... It'll help you to know that uh, you know, many abortion activists are, uh, more than ever before, making their voices heard, especially after discovering the Supreme Court of the United States is now on the verge of repealing Roe v. Wade. Unbelievable. Incredible. And yet, this has got uh, many pro-abortion activists very concerned and many taking to the streets, even on the verge of rioting. 
At the same time, pro-lifers are also preparing to, to take a victory lap as we wait for the confirmation of this information. Now, in the event that you're unaware of what's actually been happening, it'll help you to know that it was actually this past Monday evening when the left-leaning media company, which proudly calls itself Politico, they decided to leak a 98-page document which appears to be the preliminary draft of the Supreme Court decision regarding the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that this Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, it's a highly controversial court case that began back in 2018 when an abortion facility in Jackson, Mississippi decided to challenge the constitutionality of the Gestational Age Act, which at that point in time was actually a new law in Mississippi that prohibits every abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, except for in the cases of medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormalities. This controversial case ended up coming before the Supreme Court back in 2020, and it's actually centered around the question of whether or not the, all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. In other words, are abortion laws, like Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, are these laws actually unconstitutional because it robs women of some sort of God-given constitutional right that allows them to abort their pre-born babies? At the core of this case, well, we find the issue concerning the constitutionality of the landmark case better known as Roe v. Wade. It was actually back in 1973 when the Supreme Court used the 14th Amendment as the basis for deciding that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restrictions. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember here that the 14th Amendment, it's stated in this way. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdictions the equal protection of the laws. Now, as we consider this first section of the 14th Amendment, you might be wondering, where was the abortion part? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where was the abortion part? If you're wondering how the Supreme Court back in the 70s uh, used this amendment as the constitutional basis for affirming the legality of a woman's right to have an abortion, well, then you should know that the Roe ruling relied on a ridiculous precedent, which is actually found in an earlier case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which was based on a broad right to privacy that allegedly comes from the penumbras formed by the emanations that are found hopefully somewhere behind the Bill of Rights. In other words, the, the Bill of Rights, you know, it's casting a shadow 
And there at the edge of the shadow, right where the, the, the shadow is disappearing, we kind of find what may be, you know, some sort of idea of a right to privacy, which then allows a person to have a private conversation with a doctor uh, about aborting their baby. Huh. In other words, the Roe ruling, which has allowed for the abortion of more than 63 million babies, Hitler would blush. 63 million babies have been aborted since this ruling. And the ruling was based on a misleading argument about the right to privacy, which is pulled from the penumbras of emanations, which is a fancy way of saying, out of thin air. From thin air. Simply put, there's no constitutional basis for the so-called right to abortion. This is precisely the point that Justice Samuel Alito is now making as we read the preliminary draft of this Supreme Court ruling that was recently leaked by Politico, and and this is in regards to the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Here's how Justice Alito describes all of this in this Politico leak, and I quote, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes No reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That's right, according to Justice Samuel Alito, there's nothing in the Constitution nor in the amendments that guarantee the right of a pregnant woman to abort her unborn baby. Therefore, the Supreme Court was wrong. They were wrong in their decision regarding Roe versus Wade. And they were wrong in their decision about Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Justice Alito goes on to insist that Roe, and I quote here, Roe was egregiously wrong. Not just a little wrong. It was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. Wow, as we consider this opinion of Justice Alito, it's no wonder that the pro-abortion activists are on the verge of rioting now. And if this leaked document is real, well, then it looks like we're about to watch Roe and Casey being repealed as the Supreme Court today passes down a decision in this current Dobbs case. So then is there any reason to think that this document, which was leaked by Politico, is actually legitimate? Well, it was yesterday when Chief Justice John Roberts confirmed the authenticity of that first draft document, and he did this by ordering an investigation of the leaker. Now, if it's not a real leak, if this is not a real document, then there's nothing to investigate. The investigation itself helps us to see that this is a true document. Justice John Roberts even ordered this investigation by, by calling it an egregious breach of trust. So while it's true that we have yet to see the final draft of this decision, it's not yet official, 
there is still reason for us to believe that the Supreme Court is about to overturn and repeal both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as they defend the state of Mississippi and their right to prohibit abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, with all this being the case, I encourage every Christian, uh, we need to get ready. We need to get ready because more and more we're going to be seeing angry abortion activists uh, going to the streets, going to social media, going everywhere they can, protesting this Supreme Court decision. And with this as the goal, I want to spend the rest of our time tonight addressing the most common pro-abortion arguments, beginning with the belief that men don't have the right to weigh in on this issue. Yeah. Typically, when a man like me gets up and, and tries to speak to the issue of, well, you're, you're a man, you don't get to have a say. This common argument that many in the pro-abortion camp will use is an attempt to silence the voice of any pro-life man. And in response, men, you can simply ask them to define the word man. Yeah. What's a man? The leftists seem to be having problems right now defining women and men. You ask them what a man is, this for many will be an an impossible task and and then you can get back to your point. But seriously though, the the people who insist that men should remain silent about abortion, what they're failing to do is realize that Roe v. Wade was a decision made by an all-male Supreme Court. That's right. Roe v. Wade was decided by an all-male Supreme Court and yet not one abortion activist has a problem with those men speaking to the issue of abortion. So it's not an honest argument. If they want to maintain the position that men don't get an opinion about abortion, then they have to ask for the repealing of Roe v. Wade because it's the opinion of men. At the same time, you might also point out that there are millions and millions of women who are opposed to abortion. For example, Justice... Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. Amy Coney Barrett, who is a justice of the Supreme Court, has joined the opinion of Justice Alito in promoting this opinion and and, and ordering the, the, the repealing of Roe v. Wade. Does she have a say about this? What about Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, Alveda King is very pro-life. What about Candace Owens or Abby Johnson or Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony? I could, I could go on and on and on with a list of the women in the world who are completely opposed to abortion. So I don't need to make the argument, though I will. There are millions of women who will make the argument for me, though. Being a woman doesn't mean you're automatically for abortion. Listen, if I were to host a debate between a pro-abortion woman like Michelle Wolf and a pro-life woman like Candace Owens, not only would Michelle Wolf just have it completely handed to her, 
But the issue wouldn't, would no longer be about uh, the gender of the opponent. You see, if I speak to a woman about abortion, she wants to make it about my gender. Oh, well, you're a man, so you can't speak to this issue. Well, go listen to a woman then who is pro-life. And let's keep it on topic. Let's, let's quit worrying about the gender of the person arguing and let's consider the merits of the argument itself. When does life begin? Because that's the issue. Does abortion stop a beating heart? Does abortion end the life of a human baby? And, and whatever the answer to these questions are, it's true whether I'm a man or, 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 or whether the man is presenting the argument or a woman is presenting the argument, right? It shouldn't matter if the defender of the position is a man or a woman. The question is, is the position true? With that being the case, we should ask, when is the unborn baby technically alive and deserving of the right to life, deserving of the protections provided by our Constitution? With this question in mind, we shouldn't be surprised by, by the next argument that the abortion activists love to use as they attempt to convince us that this question about life, well, it's a religious issue. It's a religious issue. Don't push your religion on me. Many will go on to insist that every anti-abortion law is a clear breach of the separation between church and state. For example, consider the argument of one person who posted this statement. And I quote here, keep the church out of politics and politics out of the church. The two are separate. The church has no business being involved in politics or with women's rights and right to bodily autonomy. Now, never mind the fact that Christianity has basically uh, given women the right to be feminists. Christianity, the, the whole Christian uh, worldview, it was the entire basis for bringing women to the, to the level equal with men. Every other culture, not true. But never mind all that. The question about life in the womb can only be answered at the religious level is what they believe. And because they believe this, they, because they believe that, well, the only way to answer the question about life in the womb is from a religious point of view. Well, because they don't embrace your religion, so therefore your, your, your answer to that question about life, well, they don't have to listen to it. And if, and if that is the case, if the answer about life in the womb can only be answered by religious beliefs, well, then the government can't force a woman to give up her right to bodily autonomy simply because a religious leader believes that life begins at conception. To further grasp their argument, I would address or uh, uh, present you with a, another quote from a lady named Alice. She presents the same basic argument by declaring this, and I quote, a main reason people want to deny women the right to their own medical decisions is religious bull. They want to make laws based on theology. This is so very wrong. Believe what you want. Don't let government force me to live by someone else's faith. 
Once again, we find this argument is based on the belief that the only way to answer the question about life in the womb is with the religious beliefs that stem from some theological framework. With that being the case, you know, a very simple response to this argument was presented in, the, in this question. And the question is this. If we can demonstrate scientifically that life begins at conception, will you become a pro-lifer? Ask them. If we can demonstrate scientifically that life begins at conception, Will you leave the pro-abortion camp and become a pro-lifer? The fact is that scores of scientists have no problem identifying a human zygote as a living being. Case in point, you can go to pubmed.gov and you can find an article there titled Oviductal Endometrial and Embryonic Gene Expression Patterns as Molecular Clues for Pregnancy Establishment. In this article, we find the following statement, and I quote, In higher animals... The beginning of new what? The beginning of new life. And transfer of genetic material to the next generation occurs in the oviduct when two distinct gamete cells unite, resulting in the formation of a zygote. When is the beginning of new life? At the formation of the zygote. This scientific, this is not a religious study, this is a scientific study which leads us to believe that the beginning of new life occurs at the moment of fertilization. A similar statement can be found in a study of lab rats titled Membrane Rafts Regulate Phospholipase B Activation in Murine Sperm. It's scintillizing reading. But this scientific study begins with the following statement. It is intuitive that fertilization, the start of life, involves communication between a sperm cell and an egg. Yeah, it's intuitive. Or you might put it like this, it's a nuduh. It's intuitive that fertilization is the start of life. Or how about the study which was described in, in the article titled Cell Structural Basis of Egg Coat Sperm Recognition at Fertilization. The researchers here have no problem assuring us that life begins at fertilization. Here's how they put it, and I quote, recognition between sperm and the egg surface marks the beginning of life in all sexually reproducing organisms. Not some. All of them. When it comes to all sexually reproducing organisms, like humans, life begins at the moment of fertilization. That's not a religious person saying that. That's a scientist saying that. He's not quoting chapter and verse from the Bible. He's showing us what the science says about it. The beginning of all life happens when sperm and egg meet. In light of these scientific studies, we can see then that the question about when life begins in the womb, well, it's been answered by scores of scientists who assure us that life begins at fertilization. And listen, this is just the first studies that I grabbed. I, I, I had a long list of similar studies that said the same exact thing. 
That being the case, those who defend abortion by insisting that the pro-life position, well, it's strictly a religious position, well, they should be challenged with the science which actually supports our belief that the life begins at the moment of fertilization when the combination of sperm and egg create the brand new living DNA, which is a unique individual and as such has the right to life. Sadly, there are many who have been duped into believing that this brand new baby is nothing more than a parasite that's sucking the life of its host. For example, in the book Abortion Practice, the author Warren Hearn informs us, and I quote here, the relationship between the mother and the baby can be understood best as one of host and parasite. According to this pro-abortion activist, the fetus is nothing more than a parasite sucking the life of the mother. Now, if you've ever been pregnant, then maybe you would be like, yeah, that's kind of how I felt. (laughs) But it's more than a feeling, as some might say. Listen, it's sad to say that many women have been quick to embrace this point of view. For example, one pregnant woman justified her decision to abort her baby by declaring this, right now it's just a parasite only living off of me. I would survive in this world without a host, the definition of a parasite. As we consider this popular point of view, there should be no doubt in our minds that those who believe uh, that the baby in the womb is nothing more than a parasite, they haven't yet met a teenager. But... uh, (laughs) No, but seriously, listen, they they haven't actually taken the time to consider the difference between a human fetus and a parasite. You see, when a human is infected with a parasite, the immune system does everything that it can to attack the parasite and reject it, expel it. That's what the body does with parasites. The immune system attacks it and attempts, attempts to expel it. In contrast to this, the immune system of every pregnant woman immediately begins preparing the uterus under hormonal control in order to protect the zygote as it develops into an embryo. Then as the embryo develops into a fetus, the mother's body continues to provide a steady supply of nutrients and oxygen to the fetus for for proper growth and development. There's no comparison, not scientifically speaking, between a a fetus and a parasite. The mother's body is preparing for this full development. At the same time, I I should then address the issue of viability because they're they're, they're connected at the core of their arguments. The viability argument is used by those who insist that the preborn baby doesn't actually attain the status of personhood until they're able to survive outside of their mother, mother's womb. Now, anybody who's ever raised a child would re- easily recognize that uh, a newborn can't survive outside of the mother's womb without, without some help. Most preschoolers also need a lot of help. Elementary kids probably still need someone to make their peanut butter jelly sandwich for them. You know, so on and so forth, right? So the argument is weak uh, at the core, but 
In response to this viability argument, you, you also might remind them that the Supreme Court actually weighed in on this back in 2007 when the majority opinion of the Supreme Court acknowledged, and I quote here, by common understanding and scientific terminology, a fetus is a living organism while within the womb, whether or not it is viable outside the womb. That's what the Supreme Court said in 2007. The U.S. Supreme Court has officially identified every fetus, every human fetus as a living organism, regardless of viability. And seeing how the fetal stage begins uh, about eight weeks after conception, well, then it only stands to reason that any abortion that occurs after the fetal stage begins, after the eighth week, well, it's actually the termination of a living organism, according to the Supreme Court. And that's true, regardless of viability. With that being the case, you might ask the pro-abortion advocate who, uh, who, who is choosing to use this viability argument, you, you might ask them, do you agree with the Supreme Court's point of view? Do you agree with the Supreme Court position that a fetus is a living organism regardless of viability? And if you don't believe them about that, why do you choose to believe them about Roe? What is the basis for using the Supreme Court's decision regarding Roe versus Wade while simultaneously denying the Supreme Court's position that a fetus is a living organism while within the womb, regardless of viability? Why are you cherry-picking the Supreme Court's point of view? Furthermore, I would point out that ultrasound scanning technology was in its infancy back in the 1970s when the Supreme Court weighed in on Roe v. Wade. Now here we are, it's nearly 50 years later, and we now have new three-dimensional images that can actually put a human face on the unborn babies who were once dehumanized as being nothing more than a clump of cells. One radiologist named Grazie Pozo Christi, she sums up her experience as an ultrasound professional by declaring this, and I quote, clearly human, clearly alive, no longer mysteriously hidden from the eyes and knowledge of man. They ask us to consider them not disposable non-humans, but valuable members of our human family. What an incredible statement. Here's a scientist who earns a living using ultrasound to take images, high-definition images, of the fetus in the womb. And she's telling us they are not disposable non-humans, but valuable members of the human family. Clearly human, clearly alive. And as we consider the opinion of this professional radiologist, there should be no doubt that the Supreme Court was correct when they decided that the fetus is a living organism while within the womb, whether it's viable outside of the womb or not. And with that being the case, with this later scientific support, well, it makes good scientific sense then to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was based on 
the penumbras of emanations of insanity. So then how should we address those who insist that anti-abortion laws are literally forcing women into pregnancy? For example, consider this post by a gal named Suzanne. She declares, and I quote, in a country that offers no universal health care, no paid family leave, no universal child care, no free birth control, no mandatory comprehensive sex education nationally, and offers an abysmal system that makes seeking financial assistance and insurance a complete circus. It takes unimaginable levels of audacity for the lawmakers who are instrumental in upholding the aforementioned realities to fight for forced pregnancy and birth. Wow. It's quite the argument. And yet in reality, this is nothing more than a straw man argument. It's a straw man argument, which is based on the idea that anti-abortion laws are forcing pregnancy. There is no law that forces a woman to go get pregnant. And as much as they want to make it seem like it's the handmaiden's tale, that's where we're headed. No. No one's making you go get, go get pregnant. And if you're concerned about, you know, no universal health care, don't get pregnant. And what's the best way to not get pregnant? Abstinence. You know, what the Bible's been saying the whole time. Yeah, if you don't have health care, can't afford birth control, haven't had the mandatory sex education that you think you need, don't have sex. Problem solved. There is no current law on the books that is forcing a woman to go get pregnant. No such thing. When it comes to all pro-life legislation, not one, not one person is suggesting that a woman must go have sex and get pregnant. No, instead, the pro-life position argues that the woman who gets pregnant by her own choosing doesn't have the right to terminate the life of the human that is now developing within her womb. That's the pro-life position, that if you get pregnant, we're not going to let you kill your baby. Well, this gets us to the my body, my choice argument, which is presented by those who would have us to believe that they should just have the right to terminate their pregnancy because they should maintain the right to bodily autonomy. It's my body. I should choose, you know, what happens to it. But wait a minute. What what about the science that, again, demonstrates the evidence of new life at the moment of fertilization? Remember science? Not Dr. Fauci. You know, the actual science? The science tells us that there's new life, new DNA, a new living organism at the moment of fertilization. What about this science that reveals new DNA at the moment of fertilization? The the new DNA is scientific proof that there are two living beings there, not just one. Listen, if we sent uh, Elon Musk to Mars and he found DNA on Mars and reported back to the earth and said, I found DNA, you better believe that every scientist here would say, we found life on Mars. That's exactly what they would say. We found life on Mars, but it's just DNA. Yeah, life. 
We find DNA in the womb of a woman, and oh, that's not life. No, you're just not being scientific. If there's DNA in the womb, then we're not talking about one body. We're talking about two bodies. We're talking about two living beings. Therefore, the my body, my choice argument, it's no longer applicable. Instead, the pregnant woman who wants to be scientific ought to realize that there's at least two living beings involved here, which includes the mother and the unborn baby or babies, depending on you know, whether there's twins or triplets or what have you. And with that being the case, it would be more accurate for the pregnant woman to say, our bodies, our choice. And if it's our bodies and our, therefore our choice, well, go ahead and carry that baby to full term and then ask them later whether they would have preferred abortion or not. But until then, the minute the, a woman is pregnant, it's no longer your own body, it's your body and, and your baby's in the womb. But what about the pro-abortion activists who love to insist that abortion is health care? That for the health of the woman, we need abortion. Well, these people should spend a little more time on their research, which actually helps us to see that post-abortive women tend to suffer from more physical and emotional complications than the women who carry their pregnancy to full term. As the averages go, there are more complications because of abortion, both physically and emotionally, than any complications associated with birth and, and most certainly the emotional aspect of this. Abortion is extremely damaging. Jeremy and I actually spent time interviewing a long line of post-abortive women who all shared the same story, that they were emotionally distraught and were emotionally scarred because of their abortion or because of their abortions. Many of them telling the stories of how every year around the same time they would have deep, dark depression, which they eventually realized was the anniversary of their abortion. It's scarring. It's not health. This is not health care. This is damaging. And those who say, well, what about you know, when there's complications and, and, the, and the mother might die? The reality is, is, is that we live in a day and an age when medical advancements ha- have allowed us to avoid those complications by and large. I, I've even read the opinions of many doctors who assure us that there is never a need to abort a, a, a baby to save the life of the mother. The percentage is so low that it's just about not even an issue anymore. But as far as surgical abortions go, the surgical abortions can result in perforations of the uterus, which then can affect a woman's chance of getting pregnant later on in life. And the more abortions that a woman has, the less likely that she'll eventually be able to conceive. 
Many abortions involve forced dilation, which almost always results in microscopic tearing, which can you know, be extremely harmful to the future reproductive health of the woman. Abortion causes many women to suffer from a disorder commonly called post-abortive syndrome, and, and in many cases, women experience regret and guilt over, over killing their fetus. As a result, many of them suffer from anxiety and depression. And, and then there's the science that has shown an increasing risk of some types of cancer uh, for the women who have abortions. Simply put, when the pro-abortion activist refers to this procedure as reproductive health, this is classic 1984, you know, manipulation. This is terminology that's manipulating the masses by leading them to believe that abortion is, is basically the same as health care for women. When in reality, abortions have caused both physical injuries and emotional inju- injuries and, and scarring for many years to come. And, and let's not forget that abortion usually results in the death of the preborn baby as well. Sadly, this doesn't stop the advocates of abortion uh, and, and the abortion industry from deceiving women into thinking that abortion is all about reproductive health. And not only that, but they're also quick to warn us that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then it won't be long until pregnant women are forced to return to the back alley abortions where babies are being ripped from the womb with a rusty forcep and, and you know, some wire hanger or something. And after painting this horrific picture, the abortion industry then advocates uh, for maintaining abortion as, as a legal, safe, uh, and sterile procedure. We have to keep it legal, they'll tell us. Otherwise, women are going to be hurt by back alley abortions. That's interesting. And, and in response, again, the, the, the question that you should typically go to with most of these arguments is, what's being aborted? Very simple question. What do you propose to abort? What is it? Is it a clump of cells like cancer? Listen, if some lady came to me and was just like, I got a big old skin tag on my shoulder and I just, you know, I think I'm going to, you know, get it cut off. No, don't do that. That's, that's important. That would be ridiculous. If you come to me and say, I got a big old skin tag. I'm going to go get it cut off. You're like, well, more power to you. You need some money? No problem. So is it a clump of cells, like a skin tag? Is it a growth? Is it a, is it a tumor? It's not a tumor. If this is a tumor or a cancer or something like that, hey, let's make sure that women have bodily autonomy and all the health care they need to safely access the procedure necessary for cutting away this growth. But on the other hand, if abortion is the termination of a human life, then why in the world should we provide women with a safe place and a sterile place for them to end the life of their unborn baby? So then the question again, which one is it? Is it a clump of cells or is it a living organism? Because until they answer that question, they can't argue for abortion. We have to know what is being aborted first. So what, which one is it? Is it a tumor? Is it a skin tag? 
Or is it a living, unique being? I like the way that James Ford, MD, addressed this question. He challenged those who support abortion by declaring this, and I quote, the result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact which everyone really knows that human life begins at conception and is continuous whether intra or extra uterine until death. The very considerable semantic gymnastics which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but taking a human life would be, to, would be, a ludicrous, would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. Or simply put, those who attempt to rationalize the abortion procedure as anything other than the murder of an unborn baby are not only rejecting the scientific facts of when life begins, but they're also using an irrational argument in order to support the termination of a life. And yet the pro-abortion activists insist that we must make abortion safe and accessible. Listen, if the Supreme Court ever decides that it's legal to kill every pastor named Bungie and then wants me to make that safe and accessible to people, not helping. Trust me when I tell you, I am not about to make it safe or accessible for anyone to murder me. I'm going to make it extremely difficult for you to take my life. In the same way, I believe that we should not only criminalize abortion. Yeah, that's my position. We should criminalize abortion, but then after abortion is criminalized, we should move forward to protect the lives of every unborn baby by prosecuting anyone involved in any sort of back alley abortions. That'll solve the back alley abortion problem, right? Shut it down. Problem solved. You might be wondering, well, what about the women whose pregnancy was caused by rape and incest? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. And let me just first say this, that the world would be a much better place if legislators and judges would do a much better job punishing the men who commit acts of rape and incest. Uh, listen, chemical castration, let's move forward with that plan. You get caught raping, you get caught committing incest, Step number one, chemical castration. And then if you proceed with your wickedness, then we've got other ways to deal with that as well. Yeah, let's, let's give real consequences to these men so we can shut down rapists and incestuous people who are just committing horrific acts. That would be much better than the revolving door policies that have been used by lenient judges, many of them on the left. Yeah, they want to put the rapist back out on the streets and then turn around and say, but we need abortion because of rape. Yeah, we need to punish these men who are rapists and incestuous. Having said that, it's also important to point out that of all the abortions performed here in the United States, a little over 1% of women who obtain an abortion because of rape or incest. A little over 1%. It's about 1% because of rape and less than 0.5% of abortions 
uh, are conducted on those who were preg- impregnated because of incest. And all that just to say this, that nearly 99% of the abortions that happen here in America have absolutely nothing to do with rape and incest. 99%. One way that you can address this argument with the abortion activist who uses the outlier of rape and incest is by simply asking them, would you be willing to give up the 99% of non-rape-related abortions if you knew that every state would then continue to allow abortions in the case of rape and incest. If you present them with this question, you'll soon discover that the rape and incest issue, it was just a red herring. It's just a red herring, kind of like the, well, you're a man, so you can't talk about this. It's just a distraction. It's just designed to, to shut down the argument because they still can't answer, what are you aborting? Is it a baby or not? Is it a living organism or no? Christian, listen, if life begins at the moment of fertilization, then the living organism in the womb is alive at the moment of fertilization. It might not look human, But the DNA, listen, the DNA that makes you who you are right now, that was true of you at the moment of fertilization. Right now, your DNA is just doing what it do. And all that that information in your DNA was there at the moment of conception. Thankfully, you had parents that allowed that to play itself out. And now here you are. Beautiful and enjoying one of the best studies on abortion you've ever heard. If life begins at the moment of fertilization, the living organism in the womb is alive. And listen, this is true. Please please understand my, my heart is crushed to say it, but listen, this is true regardless of whether the father's a really good guy or a rapist. And as difficult as it is to say and hear, it's important for us to understand we don't punish children for the sins of their father. If someone came along and decided that they were going to punish you for something that your dad did, we would say that's not fair. That's not just. If the living being in the womb of a woman was produced by rape or incest, why should the baby receive the death penalty because of the sins of their father? I realize that this is tough to hear. And I know it's an extremely controversial point of view, even within the church. And yet I encourage every Christian to spend some time prayerfully thinking it through. I can't imagine the emotional pain that a pregnant woman would have to endure carrying a baby like this to full term. And yet I would also point out two wrongs don't make a a what? A right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Rape and, and then the termination of the life created won't make things right. They won't undo the, the, the rape. 
It doesn't truly uh, you know, stop the pregnancy. I mean, it ends the life, but the, the emotional pain of that, uh, of that termination will still continue. It'd be much better to just carry the baby to full term and give it up for adoption than to try to make two wrongs into one right. We don't punish children for the sins of their fathers. With all this in mind, it's important for us to remember that every person, no matter who their father is, every person is an image bearer of God. Every single one of us here tonight was created to be an image bearer of God. And not only that, but the Bible assures us that the Lord is the one who forms every child within the womb of their mother. As a matter of fact, it's here in Psalm chapter 139, it's verse 13. Here King David praises his creator by declaring, you formed me, or you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. From this we can see that the scriptures here provide us uh, with the biblical basis for believing that the Lord recognizes the life of the unborn baby. And not only does the Lord recognize the life of the unborn baby, but he's the one who's actually forming the baby there within their mother's womb. And, and yes, he recognizes this as life even when the substance of the individual is still yet unformed. Now think about that for a moment. At, at what point in time is the substance of an individual still yet unformed? Well, in order to answer this question, it'll help you to know that the original Hebrew word, which is here rendered unformed substance, it's the same Hebrew word which refers to an unformed mass, you know, like a zygote. Yeah, the, a zygote, you know, which... Uh, which begins to form at the moment of fertilization. The fertilization uh, results in the zygote, and the zygote then develops into an embryo. And, and what this means then is that our creator is the one who is creating zygotes at the moment of fertilization, and then our creator is the one who forms that zygote into the embryo and then develops that embryo into a fetus who is eventually born and, and a wonderful baby. So before the baby is birthed, the Lord recognizes the life in the womb, even in its unformed state. And the Spirit of God used King David here to assure us of the fact that the Lord is the one who has given life to every zygote. As he shapes the zygote into the baby that he's designed them to be all for his glory. What this also means then is that the eyes of the Lord... are opposed to every abortionist. The Lord is opposed to every abortionist who chooses to shed 
innocent blood. And with that being the case, it's my prayer that our nation might repent of this pro-abortion position so that we might return to the Lord and receive the merciful forgiveness of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross so that sinners like us might be saved. And I encourage you to get your mind around these arguments so that you can better address the position of those who attempt to convince us to embrace the pro-abortion position. Listen, the angry activists are coming. And we need to be get, uh, ready to give them a response, a reason for why we hold the position that we hold. And as I've pointed out several times tonight, one of the best questions that you can ask them is this, what are you proposing to abort? What is it? Is it life? And if they don't know or, or they try to give you, your, you know, an answer, take them back to these, these arguments uh, about the science that shows that life begins at fertilization. Help them to see the science uh, you know, that dismisses the abortion argument. And then help them to see the Savior who actually forms us within the womb. Finally, I want to conclude this study by addressing the Christians who continue to support pro-abortion politicians. Listen, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I've personally voted for many third-party candidates who will probably never see the, the light of day in any you know, Capitol building. And yet I feel really good when I go and cast my vote for someone that I know is going to stand against abortion. So I'm not here to tell you, you know, about a party or, or a platform, or, or I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I'm just tell, you know, here to tell you that Christians shouldn't be voting for pro-abortion candidates. I'll tell you why I believe this. The Christian who votes for a pro-abortion politician is forgetting about the statement that Solomon made in Proverbs chapter 6. There we learn that the Lord hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Let that sink in. The Lord hates the hands of those who shed innocent blood. Now, what blood is more innocent than an unborn baby? And whether we're talking about the abortion industry or whether we're talking about the politicians that support it by forcing us to give tax money to the abortion of babies. The church must remember that the Lord hates the hands of those who shed innocent blood. And rather than voting for these people, let's pray for them. I was once pro-choice. I once supported the abortion industry. I once believed that it was the woman's right to choose. I once bought into all those lies. And then I came to Christ, and then I started studying the scriptures, and then I realized 
that my opinion did not line up with God's opinion. And that's my encouragement to you. Make sure that your point of view lines up with God's point of view. Because if your point of view doesn't line up with God's point of view, guess who's wrong? I'll give you a hint. It ain't God. The Lord hates abortion. And so should we. With that being the case, I close this study by encouraging Christians, let's, let's go and present arguments to those who are pro-abortion. Let's help them to understand the error of their ways. And, and let's vote for politicians, pro-life politicians, who are ready to stand up and protect the life of every unborn baby and all for the glory of God. Let's pray.